Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detailed today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. But I was wondering, because in bingo, you're like, B1. So you know to search in B. But here, we're really going to be... Yeah, this is a free-for-all. You got to know your board. Study it, you know? Frick, I didn't study my board. (laughs) No, it's more like, um, what's it called? Loteria. No, Judy, as a bingo player, it should be and an architect. It should be easy. Just saying. That's right. Just Mm -hmm. saying. I already told you, there's a strategy to bingo that is not being used here. But okay, let's do it. Bring it. Bring it. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season, we are discussing the ladies of power couples. And on today's episode, we will talk about Florence Knoll, an architect, interior designer, and furniture designer who changed the world of corporate furniture and interiors. I'm Lizzie Rahr, wishing I had some German chocolate cake in San Francisco. And I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nergidi. I'm Nergidi Rivas thinking of the date cake I have in the fridge in Houston, Texas. Oh, yeah. I'm just, yeah, I want some date cake. um, And I'm Jessica Rogers, daydreaming of my favorite Chantilly cake from public supermarkets. Best kind out there, based out of Washington, D.C. Before we start, we have to tell you our disclaimer. The three of us are not historians. We're not experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment if you like, and we will all continue learning. Okay, listeners, if you saw our social media post yesterday, we have created two bingo boards for this episode. There are so many names that get dropped in this episode, so we thought it would be fun to play a little game of bingo as we listen to the episode. 
Jessica and Nergity have each created a board, and you can choose to play along with one of them. They'll be playing live during our recording, and you can only mark off a name on the board if I, Lizzie, say the person's name in the story. Okay, ladies, do you have your boards ready? Yeah. Yeah. Ready to win. Oh, I am way ready for this. I've been practicing since 1997. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's so specific. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get started. Today we'll be talking about Florence Knoll, who's another Michigander, guys. Whee! You know what my next question is? She is also a troll. Yeah. She's a troll! <laughs> Florence Margaret Schust was born on May 24th, 1917 in Saginaw, Michigan. She was known as Shu by her family and friends. Oh, that's so cute. Her parents were Frederick and Mina Schust. Her father was an engineer and ran a baking company. She also had a younger brother, but he passed away when she was three years old. Her father passed away when she was five years old, and then her mother passed away when she was 12. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That got real sad. I feel like I'm watching the intro of Up. All the sadness <gasps> up in the front. Yeah, damn. This, I mean, I, so this is how we're starting. Yep, okay. this is it. This is how. Yeah, you know, just all up front, guys. All at the beginning. What happens next? So at the age of 12, Florence was orphaned and put under the care of a family friend, Emile A. Tesson. He was the president of the Second National Bank in Saginaw. Then in 1931, she visited the Kingswood School, which you'll remember is the girls' school and one of the six institutions at Cranbrook in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Okay, this whole beginning is reminding me of that movie, A Little Princess. Uh, but yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to, to your point, Lizzie, we did mention the Cranbrook Institution when we talked about Ray Eames last week. Uh, right, episode 47. She described her visit there saying, I had heard of Kingswood and we went to check it out. I was enthralled by its unique beauty and made an immediate decision that it was the right place for me. As a result, my interest in design and future career began there. She began attending as a boarding student in the second class of girls at Kingswood. To quote the Ariana Grande, I see it, I want it, I get it. <laughs> da -da <-na>. <laughs> <laughs> Kingswood and the other schools at Cranbrook had a very informal teaching style that was focused on promoting various arts and crafts. It was more like an atelier and students would work in groups focused on a particular subject. There weren't grades like formal school structure. Jessica, this always made me think of your high school experience. Was it like that at all for you at an art school? <laughs> no, we definitely had grades. <laughs> um, at my school, in addition to our regular classes, we did have to take fine arts classes and a design class. So it was focused in that sense. And those classes, I would say, were similar to the types of art classes you would take in a traditional college. Now, we did have some loopy art electives like performance art and other things where the grading could be questionable, you know. But as long as you showed up and participated, you got an A. Mm. I dig that. But was there art anatomy? 
<laughs> no, but I do recall in like science classes, like biology, they would ask us to draw like one of like extra credit. We had to draw the body organs or the organs of like an animal or something and label uh, them. But yeah. So like even our regular classes always had some kind of art incorporated in it somehow. Like twist. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was fun. Good times. Well, one of the first activities or crafts that Florence worked on in school was weaving. She was in Loya Saarinen's workshop. Loya would have a big influence on Florence. And she said that Loya stimulated my interest in texture and color. Her first architectural design teacher was Rachel DeWolf Raceman, who had gone to Cornell and was the art director at Kingswood. Florence talked about Rachel, saying she guided me into the world of architecture and design. I learned the basics of planning and drafting, and my first project was to design a house. That sounds like so much fun and so awesome that she was surrounded and being taught by these talented women. Yeah, I love that, too. I feel like this has to be a rite of passage for everyone, right? To design a house. Mm. Well... Eliel Saarinen hears about this girl at Kingswood who is interested in architecture and, you know, he comes to see what she's up to. So after that, Eliel would often come and check on her work and became her mentor. As if she didn't have enough talent to learn from already. That's awesome. I love this. <laughs> this to me just proves how important it can be to make those kinds of connections with professors and, I mean, the value of mentorships. Yeah. So, as you can see, Florence was pretty in with the Serenins. And I think also partly due to the fact that she was orphaned and boarding at the school, she spent a lot of time with their family and essentially was adopted into the family. Every summer, the Serenins would go back to Finland to their home, Vitrask, and then travel in Europe. And so Florence started going with them every summer. All right. Officially jealous of Shu. A trip to Finland would be so nice. But she also is in such great company. Mm-hmm. So obviously living with the Saarinens for most of her adolescence would have an impact on her as a designer, among other things. She talked about living with them, saying life with the Saarinens was not just work. In spite of their Scandinavian reserve, they had a great sense of fun and had amusing friends and gave lively dinner parties. We made interesting trips in Finland and then on the continent at the end of each summer. Royally. <laughs> I mean, from our earlier episodes, we know that this Saarinen clan had a very eclectic lifestyle. So it's so interesting to get her perspective. Yeah. Well, Arrow became her sort of big brother, right? And would also teach her architectural history and about design when they were in Finland. And then when they were back at Cranbrook, Florence talked about how Arrow gave her the idea to plan and make as many of the furnishings as she could for her dorm room. She said, I designed an all-in-one desktop, bookcase, headboard combination, and a simple cube table on rollers. In the weaving department, I started a striped carpet, some upholstery, and as I progressed in skill, a geometric wall hanging inspired by Loya. That is so cute. Also, if people plan along, I got three, like not from the past <laughs> sentence, but if I'm keeping count, I have three bases. Yeah, total. Okay. Same here. Okay. But anyway, this gives me some major Hans Schroeder vibes in the sense of this like privilege of learning from these talented people and then given the freedom to openly explore and test out your design. It's so cool. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That sounds brilliant. I, is it going to be on our show notes for listeners to look at? Yes. I'll include a sketch that she drew of the dorm room design. OK, good. So Arrow was seven years older than Florence and they were very close. She talked about how much she learned from him, quote, because he was my big brother, kind of. He would criticize my work tremendously because he wanted me to do the best. He taught me a lot. In some ways, you could say Arrow and his work as a designer influenced me to pursue the life I did. That is so great. I would imagine Arrow as a really good critical big brother looking out for her, you know? I'm Mm. glad glad she had him after how rough the start of her life was. Yeah. I agree. I really love this. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Apparently, the Saarinens were kind of hoping that Arrow and Florence would eventually get together. And she mentioned in an interview that there was a little something romantic happening there for a while. (laughs) I know. I was thinking that, too. But then I thought, like, no, she saw him like too much of a big brother. And that's really you. (laughs) True. There is the friend zone. And then there's the quote unquote brother zone. So, yes. Mm. I don't know. Totally understand you. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go there. Don't go there. Well, Florence later said that she could never have married Arrow because it was too risky that she would always be in his shadow. Oh, yeah, I can see that. That's a really good reason. But who knows? Maybe, just maybe, she would have shown on her own. Would she? I I will say, though, we haven't talked about this in this season, which is kind of surprising, but... It's just interesting to think that Florence thought about how this relationship could impact her career. Like she thought about it ahead of time, you know? Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Something to think about. Well, she and Arrow remained personally close for their entire lives, even through all the drama in Arrow's life, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. And through Florence's ups and downs. And I think it's no surprise in how they met and grew up. They were close professionally as well and often collaborated. And we'll talk about that later in the episode. I can't wait. And I don't know why, but this made me think of Leo and Kate. What? What? Like how Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, how they're such good friends. I know, but what do you mean? Like, because they're such good friends throughout their whole lives and they've never been anything other than amazing friends. Oh, you mean the actual people? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I When you said it, I first thought of like Titanic. And I was like, that seems like a bad reference. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't say whatever their names were in the movie. I see. Jack, Jack and yeah. Rose. <laughs> but I do. But I, I see your point about Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Because it's yeah. this whole like, will they or won't they type of thing. But yeah. yeah. And they just so, won't. They're good friends. They're good yeah, friends. Yeah. Anyway, so like what happens next, though? <laughs> All right. So we can see how the Serenins and Cranbrook sent Florence off on a particular path. But let's talk about who else she met along the way. How are the bingo boards looking, guys? OK, as of now, we still have the three. Yeah, just I only three. have three. And okay. I just realized I'm pretty sure one of them is not going to show up in my four corners. So I'm going to lose that one. All right. We'll get ready to mark those boards more. All right. Oh, good. Okay, grab we my, need uh-huh. that. Yeah. Some rapid fire happening here. I'm so. here. Oh, snap. Ready. ready. Let's do it. So in 1934, Shu graduates from high school and Eliel suggested that she study at Cranbrook Academy of Art for a bit before heading to an architectural program. So she studied under Eliel and Carl Miel, a Swedish sculptor. Then in 1935, 
She goes to Columbia University School of Architecture in their town planning program. And while she's there, she rubbed elbows with Le Corbusier a little bit. Of course she did. Okay, two names. Marking them on my bingo board. Yeah, I'm, I know I have Corb. Oh, here it is. Corb. Done. Yeah, I realized I didn't have a meal on my board. Carl. So, yeah, Carl. Mm. But that's okay. That's fine. That's fine. I'm yeah. still going to beat you. So next year, she didn't go back to Columbia because she needed a surgery. So oh. she had that done in Michigan and did an architecture course at Cranbrook in the meantime. And that year, she met a few future collaborators like Marianne Strangel, a textile designer, and Harry Bertoya, an artist who would later design the famous diamond chair. Ooh, Marianne, I just put her on my board. Scratch that name off. She is the influential Finnish-American modernist textile designer who pioneered the use of synthetic fibers. Shu is just collecting inspiring people left and right. <laughs> this takes networking and making connections to like a whole other level. Um, also, so the name Harry Batoya was a little hazy for me at first, but Everyone, you will recognize this Italian-born American's work. I mean, the diamond chair? We see a version of it today. Listeners, picture this mesh-like patio chair made out of metal. If you look it up, you will definitely know what I'm talking about. Yes. So it's summer of 1937, and Florence and the Saarinen's are in Finland, per usual. And they stop over to see Alvar Alto for a bit. You know. Marked that name off my list. And oh, hey, looking at you, episode 45. So Alvar tells Shu that she should really go to the AA in London. So the following winter, she goes for two years. She wrote to her first architecture teacher, Rachel, and said she really wanted to learn about construction while she was there. And she would learn about it from Ove Arup, a well-known engineer, and Maxwell Fry, who was a guest critic. Mm, okay, marking two more names. OMG, Arab, as in the engineer who started the huge architecture and engineering firm, Arab? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's one of the most famous structural engineers ever. If engineers had star engineers, he'd be Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> <laughs> star engineers. Oh, and also, Shu learned from Maxi. I wonder if she also learned from Dame Commander Jane Drew of the Order of the British Empire. Yes. Good question. I didn't find her name in my research, but, you know, who knows with this lady? She was meeting everybody. So London and the AA is also where Florence started working with suiting fabrics, which she would later use for upholstery in her furniture designs. Sounds like the AA was so influential. Alto's advice panned out. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, with the AA at this point, we can also name drop Zaha, but the timing isn't right. But for what it's worth, we've talked about the AA and how it produced so many influential architects and designers. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so now it's 1939. And as you can guess, World War II really messes up her plan to keep going to the AA. So she had to leave and return to the States. As is expected. Yeah. So she stops over in Cambridge, Massachusetts on her way back and interns with Marcel Breuer and Walter Gropius's firm for a little bit. She works with them on the Frank House in Pittsburgh, and it's said that she was the designer of the children's bedrooms. 
She also worked with Annie Albers, a textile designer who would become a collaborator later in life. Okay, so my bingo board looking real good, Nergidi. I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> I know, this I is scary. Like, I got like one or two just waiting for these names to come out. But all right. So Lizzie, you know, she keeps doing these name drops, but we're going to have to take a pause and talk about the Frank House because this project, it was so ahead of its time. It was, I mean, hello. It was designed by these two powerhouses, Gropius and Brewer. So she finishes up in Massachusetts and, you know, if you can't go to the AA, why not just head over to the Armor Institute in Chicago and study with Mies? Naturally. So, you know, back to bingo. You mentioned the Armor Institute. So, you know, and you mentioned Mies. So we might as well throw out some other names like our season one ladies, Georgia Louise, Beverly Lorraine Green, who also worked with Mies and studied there at the time. Who knows if they cross paths? Imagine how awesome that would be. Right? Connector of all things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Shu studied there and graduated in 1941 with a Bachelor's of Science in Architecture. She also had a personal friendship with Mies. Apparently, they were sort of neighbors. So she said, frequently when I would walk home from the school in the evening, I would stop for a coffee on the way and talk to Mies. It was a great bonus. (laughs) <laughs> so casual so neighborly <laughs> you know as one does <laughs> you know classes are over let me go let me go see what Mies is talking about you know yeah, let me grab a cup of tea or something yeah some tea, help tea me out <laughs> <laughs> well Florence would later say that Mies had a profound effect on my design approach and the clarification of design he taught her creativity of form the honesty of materials the creative elevation of industrial production. If the two of you think of Mises' designs, they're very technical and artistic at the same time. And I think that Florence took that later into her interiors and furniture design. That sounds beautiful. As I've mentioned before, Mises is like my all-time favorite architect. Mm-hmm. For his work, I definitely don't appreciate him. But <laughs> maybe re-listen to episode 12 to remember why, if you want. Mm-hmm. Most especially listen to episode 12 to learn about Lily Reich. Yes. And that relationship. But anyway, can I just say that I feel like Florence was like the Forrest Gump of design. She was able to like live and learn from all of these iconic designers. And she hasn't even started in her career. She's just learning from these people. Right. Like, like Forrest Gump. Great analogy. She's just <laughs> studying. Yeah. <laughs> What is she going to (laughs) do? Well, Florence is finally ready to take on the working world. She moves to New York City and hops around to a few different offices before working at Harrison, Abramovitz, and Fuilu, who designed Rockefeller Center. She got put into their interiors department, which was common for female architects at the time. Surprise, surprise. I think it's a bit common to this day to see more women in that field, but... Anyways, that's cool that she was working in that firm. Yeah. Meanwhile, she starts moonlighting a bit for Hans Knoll. Hans was from Germany, and his father and grandfather had been furniture manufacturers in Germany who had worked with Mies, Gropius, and the Deutsche Werkbund. The name dropping keeps going and going. I think I'm going to get bingo real soon. Mm. I think I'm going to assume too. But anyway, the most noteworthy of this name dropping from that sentence is Hans Noll. 
AKA her future boo. Uh, but you know, I, uh, oh, that's what I said. Future boo thing. But you know, I get ahead of myself. <laughs> yes. So some background on Hans. Hans moved to the U.S. in 1937 and started the Hans G. Knoll Furniture Company in 1938. The company would also take interior design commissions on occasion, which is how he met Shoop. Cue the meat cute. <laughs> in 1943, Florence started working full time for Knoll. It sounds like Hans was more of the dreamer and big picture guy and Florence was more practical and down to earth and made things happen. Hans was impulsive and would make promises before being able to deliver. According to one of the sources I read, Florence became Hans's business partner because she bailed him out of a tough spot. Apparently, in 1944, he made a deal with Bloomingdale's to sell his furniture, but the deal ended up losing him $50,000, which today would be around 700 k so word is that Florence came in and covered the cost with her inheritance fund and as a result became a co-owner of the company. Whoa, what a buy-in. <laughs> I also don't know if I would have done that for just anyone. She must have been in love. Yeah, I feel like it wasn't just out of kindness or no. like trying to get on on the business, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, love can make you do a lot of crazy things. Um, but can we talk about how in this season these men are these like, quote unquote, like dreamers? And it's the women that bring it back to reality and end up saving the day. Like, yeah, it's crazy. yeah. If women would have been doing that, they would have been in the sanatorium getting a lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> Men can be dreamers, but women are crazies. This took oh, a joke. Well, do you remember the fainting chair? Like it was a chair yeah, for women to true. faint, <laughs> and they got overwhelmed. Well, just a thought. <laughs> well, in 1946. Hans and Florence got married, and shortly after, the company was renamed Knoll Associates. She became their design director, and Hans handled the business affairs. Okay, so they solidified their partnership professionally and romantically. <laughs> no, come, hold up, Shoe, what are you doing? I mean, did she forget the business deal he made two years earlier? I'm sorry, this don't feel right. <laughs> I mean, I guess, but I think she balanced him out and figured out how to mm -hmm. make his ideas work, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. He was yeah. the salesman and the big ideas guy, and she reined him in and figured out how to make it a reality. In 1950, they opened a new factory in East Greenville in eastern Pennsylvania, which would become the headquarters of Knoll. At the time, this area was chosen because... It had a lot of young men who were returning home from war and were skilled German-American craftsmen. It's raining men. Hallelujah. <laughs> but yes. we talked about that last week, too. Oh, the influx of soldiers right. and men coming. But anyway, yeah. yeah, cool. So as the design director, Florence oversaw graphics, marketing, furniture design, the interiors department, the textile division, and the Knoll planning unit, which was focused on designing showrooms and workspaces. So she was in charge of their entire brand. <laughs> yeah, literally everything. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All right. So let's start with furniture. 
Hans's company from the start had tried to get designers to design furniture for them and use their name to add notoriety to their products, and they would pay the designers royalties for the work. Florence definitely propelled this idea forward, and they were able to get very big name designers to collaborate with them through her connections. That's super smart and still done today. Florence and Hans were innovators. Yeah, I think he took influence from his family's experience with the Deutsche Werkbund, how they Uh, did that too. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so Florence is using all of those connections that she made earlier in this episode. So cool. By the way, have we reached bingo yet? I have not. I have not. Okay. Yeah, so give us some more names now. (laughs) So Noel became famous for developing and producing these big name furniture designs, as well as licensing production of other famous designs. Some examples are the Barcelona and the Bruneau chairs by Lily Reich and Mies. The diamond chair. bingo before me but i knew that it was come like i knew i was gonna get bingo soon <laughs> i got walter gropius alvar alto maxwell fry and lily reich Woo! Uh, <laughs> i thought i was gonna win well congratulations to all the winners yes congrats to winning <laughs> yes congrats you get bragging rights and the love in our hearts <laughs> Okay, but more importantly, what what was she doing? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So in addition to the Barcelona and Bruno chairs, there was also the diamond chair, which we mentioned before by Harry Bertoia, and the Bertoia side-by-side chair, the womb, grasshopper, and molded number 71 chairs by Aero Saarinen, the Albini desk and armchair by Franco Albini, the scissor chair by Pierre Jeanneret, the Plattner collection by Warren Plattner, and the Seska and Wasili chairs by Marcel Breuer. So I would have gotten bingo with Pierre Jeanneret, my free space, Loya, Gropius, and Annie Albers. Oh, you were missing Pierre. Yeah, I was missing Pierre. So okay, close. gotcha. So close. And we said a lot of names, but Lizzie did not. Well, I mean, who else? Who else? There are so many big name designers and pieces of furniture. I am like a little starstruck just listening and winning at bingo. Yeah. Okay. Congratulations, my friend. You won bingo. But here is where it all comes full circle. Listeners, if you can recall from designers that Lizzie mentioned, the goal for these designs, besides function and style, was its ability to be mass produced. So here comes the Noel Company being the conduit to do just that, taking these designs from these iconic designers and mass producing them. It, this, it's, uh, it's such a great loop to like close. Right? I mean, yeah. In addition to these chairs being designed by well-known names, Shu designed much of the other furniture and chairs that would be sold by Noel to fill the interiors of homes and corporate offices in the wave of post-war modernism that swept the country. And it sounds like she was pretty humble about them and called them the meat and potatoes of the design versus the more sculptural pieces of these other big name designers. She said, Aero and Bertoia did the stars and I did the fill-in. I did it because I needed the piece of furniture for a job and it wasn't there. So I designed it. 
her designs would be nearly half of the Knoll collection. Hmm. Okay, she was being way too modest. Own it, Shushu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, girl. There's also something to be said that what Florence contributed was designed that was more accessible to the masses. I mean, uh, it's so admirable. I love it. Yeah. So I sort of mentioned it before, but Shu worked on way more than just furniture, even though most people probably hear Noel and that's what they think of, right? They probably don't mm-hmm. know that Noel and Florence did a lot more outside of furniture. They had a textiles department, the renowned planning unit, and we will talk about these parts of Shu's career on next week's episode. Wait, what? We stop here? There's so much more to learn about Florence and what this known company ends up being. What? I cannot believe you're doing this to us. I just <laughs> cannot wait to learn more about what she did with Noel. Also, Jessica, maybe we can play again in the next episode and you can have yes. a chance to win. There will be a second game of bingo in next week's episode, guys. Okay. Okay. A, a chance to redeem a myself. A chance cause... for Jessica to redeem herself. Yeah, because yeah. I'm still going to win. to all that we're playing with my board, good job. Yes. Yeah, okay, whatever. Congrats. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Alrighty. But before we continue, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Are you tired of using outdated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your projects stand today? Well, Monograph is here to help. It's designed by architects for architects. Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their Money Gantt, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget. Do you need to adjust your projects week to week? Their tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Learn what else Monograph can do to help you operate your firm at monograph.com. Be proactive with Monograph. Today, we are also sponsored by NCARB's Analysis of Practice Study. NCARB's Analysis of Practice Study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Here, you can share your thoughts on how to improve the profession and how architects can work and collaborate better. Whether you're an architect or you just work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. So make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org backslash AOP. Thanks again to all our sponsors, Monograph and NCARB's analysis of practice for supporting our show. Now, let's get back to Florence Knoll. Or actually, we're done with Florence Knoll. So let's go to our karyotid. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica, why don't you tell us what the karyotid is? Okay, so for some of y'all that don't know, a karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode, we will choose a karyotid or a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. All right. Without further ado, this week's karyotid is... <laughs> is one half of Müller van Severen, a furniture design firm which she started with her husband, Hannes 
von Severin. Fien and Hannes met in a sculpture class, and they were in art school at St. Lucas Ghent in Belgium. Hannes is the son of a famous modern Belgian designer, Martin van Severin, and Fien grew up in a house that was full of color and paintings. Both of these upbringings, along with their sculpture background, influenced their designs. Oh, so wow. cute. Oh, that's so cute. And it sounds just like Hans and Florence. I love it. It's so cool. So one of their first pieces was a set of leather swing loungers that had a floor lamp attached to it. So in their home outside of Ghent, there wasn't any electrical wiring in the ceiling. So it inspired them adding a lamp to this chair. It actually looks really cool. I'll include it in the show notes. The work is very simple and visually interesting, but very functional. Functional, just like Florence. I love it. Yeah, and that's so ingenious. I really like how they solved that design problem. And also, I bet you that looks really comfortable, too. Like, could you imagine reading a book on the swing? Mm. You could do it at night. That sounds fun. Yeah. Swinging and reading and stuff. Yeah. They said their collaboration doesn't have very set roles and that they do everything together. Sometimes she has the initial idea. Sometimes he does. They say they can work this way because they trust each other and accept each other's criticism because we appreciate the other's work, personality, background and talents. Yes, I love this. And yeah, the trust, the basic foundation of any partnership or relationship. So it's Mm -hmm. cute. So they're both dreamers and both (laughs) down to earthers. Wonderful. Yes. (laughs) All right. Now let's visit the Agora. In Greek society, the Agora was the central meeting place of the city where news was shared. So now we're going to share some good news from our listeners and share the excitement and wins together. Yes. This week's visit to the Agora, we have news from Kira Gold. She is the co-host of Design the Future podcast, a friend of ours as well. Well, in 2022, the AIA honored five members to become an honorary AIA member. And Kira is the only woman on that list. So yay, Kira. So yes. Good job. So for those of you that don't know, to become an honorary AIA member, it's for people that don't qualify for AIA membership based on their backgrounds, but they have made major contributions to the architecture industry. So Kira is being recognized for her contribution. So yes, go Kira. Awesome. So listeners, let's continue to share great news from you. If you have news to share, big or small, please send them to our email, shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Let's celebrate your accomplishments together. Okay. Before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Florence and Fien along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. And thank you to Monograph and NCARB for their support of this episode. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Yeah! And Gable Media is all about building a better world. If this sounds right up your alley, I know it does. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. Yeah. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. Did you win bingo? Well, anyway, 
If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your bingo partners, your family members, your network of influential people, your circle of friends that you trust. Tell them to give us five stars on iTunes, write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPod. Until next time. Bye. Adios. Bye. That was really loud. Sorry. Bye. So anyway, what happens next? So that's all we're going to say about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm in my bingo board. I can't talk more. Google it. It's cool. Look it up, listeners. Look it up. Uh. <laughs> I'm playing bingo over here. Okay. I'm destined to win. designers and curious minds ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls i'm carrie seaburn structural engineer and host of unstruct the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design behind the math and physics structural engineering simply predicts building behavior join me as we simplify the complex making structural design accessible to everyone nowadays instead of measuring it via cost we're saying well what about carbon you know we've got two levers now that we can if, if an architect has an inefficient design we can hit them with two levers if you like <laughs> the official casualty figure is fifty-five thousand. everybody i talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much and i believe that i mean seeing what i saw Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Today.